We finished last week with the 14th chapter of Exodus. We finished up to the 14th chapter of Exodus. So tonight we'll begin, having completed chapter 13, we came right to the introduction to chapter 14, and we will resume there. Exodus chapter 14, the book of Shemot, one of the books of the Torah. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Aaron to turn back and camp before Pehachirot, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, and they did so. Now, the Hebrew here, the Hebrew word for honor is an interesting term, kavod. Kavod is the basic Hebrew term for honor. But it comes from the word kaved, to be heavy. To honor something is, it is weighty. It carries weight. It's something weighty for you. To dishonor something or to curse something is kalal, to be light for you. You take it lightly. That which you take lightly and that which you take heavy. When you dishonor something, you take it lightly. When you honor, you take, you take it heavily. God is not saying that Pharaoh and his army are going to worship him. It's just that they are going to take him very seriously. They are going to take him very seriously. And God will once again harden Pharaoh's heart in judgment in verse 4. Okay, The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is similar language to what we see, of course, later on in the book of Ezekiel and the Gog and Magog scenario. Then it goes. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people. And they said, what is this that we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us? They regret their decision to let my people go. So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots, his best chariots for battle, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers. So there was 600 of his best chariots and then the other chariots and the military commanders over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. And the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them coming by the sea next to Pi-Hahirot in front of Baal-Zephan. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there was no grave in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is a recurrent theme. It is a recurrent theme throughout the sojourning. Now, again, as we know from the book of Corinthians, the epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the rescue from Egypt is a picture. It is certainly a picture of the rapture and resurrection, but it is a picture of our salvation. Moses covers the people with the blood of the Lamb, and he leads them out from the power of Pharaoh, out of Egypt, through the water, through the wilderness, into the promised land. A picture of the way we are covered with the blood of the Lamb, and Jesus leads us out through the waters of baptism, through the sojourning in this life, into heaven. One being the picture of the other. Now, this story, again, it replaced something that happened earlier. Initially, they told Moses, we'd rather serve Egypt. We'd rather stay here. It's going to get worse if we listen to you. In the Christian life, it is the same thing. Nobody wants to make bricks for Pharaoh. Unsaved people are slaves of the God of this world. But the old nature will want to choose that over the adventure of becoming a new creation and having to trust God through dire circumstance. The world always gives a false sense of security. It always gives a false sense of protection and security that in the end, of course, fails. It never works. Nonetheless, people tend to look at it. Now, we see something else here. They complain against Moses. This is not the first time, and it certainly will not be the last time. We will see that next week in Exodus 15. When things become difficult in the sojourning, people turn against the leaders. You're the one who got us into this. Well, in the age of cheap grace, God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Just put your hand up and accept Jesus into your heart. And they don't tell people that they've entered into a spiritual battle. They don't tell people that they've been recruited into God's army. They don't tell people that Jesus said, we're going to have tribulation in the world. We're going to have struggles and conflict that the world is in the power of the wicked one, that we have a fight on our hands and that the world is against us. The world hates Jesus. The world's going to hate you. People need to count the cost. They need to be explained the reality of the gospel. Grace is free. It is not cheap. The idea that God's going to bless you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, that is a half-truth, a half-truth. Now, of course, this has been amplified by the word faith money preachers, by the liars of Satan from the word faith money camp. You're a king's kid. You don't have to suffer. God wants you rich. Blab it and grab it. Guaranteed healing every time before the resurrection or rapture. 
They tell people all these lies, this false gospel, where there's no biblical model of discipleship. You've got the whole Kenneth Copeland thing. You've got the, uh, well, it goes on and on and on. Joel Osteen, et cetera. It goes on and on and on. Those people are dangerous. If someone enlists in the military during a war, they know they're going to be in a war. When somebody comes to faith, they need to be told the truth right there. Now, there are, are people who would rather endure oppression than fight. They would rather be oppressed than stand up and fight. That's even true in the human realm. But in the spiritual realm, it is no less true. Make bricks for Pharaoh. It's better than fighting against him. God calls people to trust him, to put on his uniform, which is the garments of salvation, to enlist in his army, which will ultimately be victorious, and to know we have an enemy and we have a sojourning in front of us. Count the costs. We see this right from the beginning here in chapter 14. We also see the idea of the wandering aimlessly, wandering aimlessly that Pharaoh said. Well, let's look at Numbers 33.7. And they journeyed from Etam and turned back to Pihaherot, which faces Baal Zephon, and they camped before Migdal. Just think of it. After coming out of Egypt, after sojourning in the wilderness for some time, en route to the promised land, they wind up right where they began. They wind up right exactly where they began. They went in a circle, and they went in a circle for nothing. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Well, it happened to them for the same reason it can happen to us, and it's happened to many Christians. Let's look at what brought them there. They were in conflict. They had problems. And with these problems and conflicts, they wound up going in circles. Now, chapter 33 of Numbers reviews the journey from Egypt to the Jordan, and it tells them right where they began. We don't want to go back there. Backsliders can waste years of their life. Yes, a backslider may repent, but they will have wasted years, months, however long of their lives when they could have been making progress. When backsliding happens, it happens for the same kind of reason. The people look for an artificial false sense of security. Let's look, please, 
to the book of Isaiah, chapter 30. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, to make an alliance, not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. The old creation wants to look to the world for safety. It will trust the things of the world. Now notice, and we'll see this again, they do it without consulting the Lord. As we always point out, whenever we get involved with the world, with its legal system, its financial system, its health system, its education system, we need to be led of the Lord and have his green lights to do these things. Chapter 31 of Isaiah. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, rely on horses, trust in chariots because they are many, etc. The old nature, the old creation, the old man, the old woman has a natural propensity to look to the things the world considers strong. It is only the new creation that looks to the Lord. There is a battle between the old and new creation and every one of us. And this is illustrated and foreshadowed by the sojournings of Israel. So this whole journey is retold from the 33rd chapter in Numbers. And it goes back here to where the journey began and it retells what happened to them. But the amount of time they wasted in interim periods. Let's look. This goes on. Verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. Ultimately, the unsaved, the Egyptians, the people of the world, those under Pharaoh, those under Satan, the God of this world, those ultimately under Antichrist. A time will come for their destruction and we will not see them again. But like the children of Israel, we have a battle of faith. We can have a tendency to turn against the leadership as they did. Now this was a relatively light instance in the rebellion of Korach. It reached the absolute paramount of rebellion. And rebellion is as witchcraft, saith the Lord, to rebel against a righteous leader who's teaching the truth and doing what's right. To rebel against righteous leadership, righteous leadership now, is as witchcraft. But let's look. The Lord, in verse 14, will fight for you and keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? When God tells us what to do, and we know what he's told us to do, and we come under pressure for doing it, as we at times inevitably will, 
There is no need to keep going back to the Lord. If he told you to do it, get on with the job. Yes, pray for his guidance, protection, his strength, but get on with it. God asks him, why are you crying out to me? I already told you. The Lord put the Israelites into a position where they had no way out but him. And in our lives as believers, in the life of any congregation, any family, any ministry, certainly in the body life of the church at large, the body of Christ as a whole, there will be times where the Lord will place us in the face of our adversaries, he will place us into circumstances where there will be no way out except him. Tell the sons of Israel in verse 15 to go forward. Don't cry out to me. I told you what to do. Go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand, that same staff of the miracles that we've studied in the earlier chapters. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that staff of authority. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, not just the Pharaoh now, but of the whole nation. This happens in the book of Revelation. After the rapture, after the rescue of God's people out of there. Remember? And men still did not repent of their wicked deeds? <coughs> Part of the wrath of God will not simply be the judgments themselves, but the fact that God has hardened their hearts and made it impossible for them to repent. Certain individuals, God will have a purpose for Israel and the Jews at that time, but he's going to make it impossible for these people to turn. He's going to harden their hearts in judgment. This is frightening. It's not just the judgments. It's the fact that he hardens their heart and they won't be able to turn to him. You didn't want me? Well, now I don't want you. And he says, I'll harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go after them. They will try to kill the Israelites. This is the way the world comes after us. This is the way the demonic cohorts of Satan come after us. And I will be honored through Pharaoh. Again, he'll take me as something heavy. And all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I am honored through Pharaoh and through his chariots and his horsemen. How is he honored through them? When do they take him seriously? When is he something weighty for them? When he destroys them. Ultimately, this will happen universally. The close of the age, ultimately, every knee 
shall bow. Even the demons will have to acknowledge Jesus and worship him. Even Satan. Every knee shall bow. No salvation for them. But every knee shall bow. They'll know I'm the Lord. Verse 19. Now we see a Christophany, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is called in Judaism the Metatron. And he is misinterpreted due to the influences of Kabbalah, of mystical Judaism in the Zohar. And they falsely attribute to him as being some kind of an angelic being. In some traditions, Enoch, Kabbalah is based on the occult. They call the angel of the Lord the Metatron, the one who is on back of the throne, okay? Like metadata. It could also be interpreted possibly center of the throne. Now, the ones they call the Metatron, the angel of the Lord that Orthodox Jews, particularly Kabbalistic Jews, Hasidic Jews, call Metatron. The angel of the Lord is actually a Christophany. It's the Lord Jesus. Their Kabbalistic distortions misrepresent the angel of the Lord as being someone and something other than he actually is. No, the one they call the Metatron, the angel of the Lord, is Jesus. We have a teaching explaining it. And the teaching shows that even Judaism acknowledges the deity of the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus. Yeshua. And the angel of God had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went after them. Jesus goes before us, but he also has our back. He also has our back. First, he's there before us. Then he disappears from sight. We don't see him. But he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He still has our back. First, he's before us. Then we're walking by faith, as it were, but he's on back of us. But there is the true vicar of Christ. Not that imposter in Rome, but the one who behaves vicariously in place of Jesus. The Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit. Let's look. He had been going before the camp. Then he moved and went on back of them, and the pillar of cloud, the Shekinah, moved from before them and stood after them. Okay. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood after them. Let's read it again. The angel of the Lord who had been going before the camp moved and went on back of them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood on back of them. Notice that you have a hypostatic union between the angel of the Lord and the pillar of the cloud, between the Shekinah and Jesus. Of course, at this point, his name is not Jesus. He's the eternal son of God. So it came about between the camp of Egypt 
and the camp of Israel, there was a cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. The camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, there was a cloud with darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near to the others. The Holy Spirit will always separate us from the world. The Holy Spirit will always keep us separate from the world. What empowers a believer to overcome sin? The old nature wants to sin. The old creation wants to sin. What empowers a believer to avoid the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, the things of the world? What is it? We cannot overcome it in our own strength. It is the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit separates us from the things of the world. It separates us from the Egyptians. The Holy Spirit draws a distinction between those who belong to the Lord and those who don't. It goes on. Verse 20, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Egypt, the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. The people of God will be able to see in the night. The faithful people of God will have night vision. A great darkness comes at the close of the age. The faithful virgins, the wise virgins, will have oil in their lamps. They'll be able to see in the night. The Holy Spirit will illuminate the scriptures for them. It doesn't matter how dark it gets, they will have night vision. Remember, at the close of the age, when it gets dark, understanding becomes the barometer of faithfulness. Daniel, none of the wicked are going to understand. Laodicea, buy soft to anoint your eyes that you may see. The wise virgins need to be able to see in the night. The wicked will not understand. The faithful people who belong to the Lord, those faithful to him, will. And it has to do with the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit and the Scriptures. Then Moses, verse 21, stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind. Now, east winds are usually adverse in Scripture. Here, if it's adverse, the adversity works to the favor of God's people. It becomes adverse for the Egyptians because it traps them. It ensnares them. All night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. I recall Benny Hinn said on television that the Hebrew text, and he says he was born in Jaffa in Israel uh, from an Arab Roman Catholic family. He said on television 
that he knew Hebrew because he was born in Israel, and that the Hebrew text says the water became ice. God froze it. Now, modern Hebrew ice is kedok, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say it froze it. It doesn't say any such thing. It says the wind pushed it back. The breeze pushed it back. So I was in speaking at a church that has a Jewish pastor that I still speak at occasionally in Maui, Hawaii, in the United States, and mid-Pacific, but in the United States. And Benny Hinn was on his way back from, I think it was Samoa or somewhere, or Fiji. A lot of Christians in, in Fiji, a lot of Christians in Polynesia and things like that, and then Melanesia, Micronesia. So I was down there and I ran into him <laughs> in a bookshop and he was with his bodyguards. Now we have a guy who's part of the Morial ministry team in California named Ken, who had been one of Benny Hinn's bodyguards. Another story, but he could tell you stories. Anyway, <clears throat> I went up to Benny Hinn and I spoke to him in Hebrew. and. I said, you don't speak Hebrew? He said, not really. Well, that's not what you said on television. And his bodyguard was standing there, this young guy, nice guy, very muscular, athletic-looking black guy. But he was his minder. And I said to him, look, I have a list of prophecies this long, false predictions that you made in the name of the Lord. By biblical definition, I can prove you're a false prophet. You ought to repent and get out of the ministry now. He wouldn't even deal with it. I went eyeball to eyeball with him. He wouldn't even deal with it. He's arrogant, phony. No, the water did not turn to ice. It stayed liquid. <laughs> Benny Hinn has said a lot of crazy things like that. But let's look. God stops the water. It turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. Now something like this would happen when they would cross the Jordan. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, which would be on the north and on the south. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. And it came about at the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire. Now this is speaking, of course, anthropomorphically <laughs> to a degree. He looked through the Egyptians from the pillar of fire and clouds and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. Now this could be Jesus, not yet called Jesus, the Son of God, from the Shekinah. They bring the armies of the Egyptians into confusion. And he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us free from Israel. 
for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Ultimately, the world will know. This commences in the book of Revelation chapter 6. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. Notice it happens around dawn. Very frequently, things that illustrate the resurrection take place when the resurrection did, at dawn. There's a reason. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. Total destruction. Now, the most educated guess of where this occurred would have been uh, again at um, Sharm el Sheikh, Sharm el Sheikh, opposite Saudi Arabia. And it goes on. Thus, the sons of Israel walked to the dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and left. That's what happened. Not one of them remained, but the people of God were rescued. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They were washed in by the tide, dead. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared, reverenced the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Notice that the miraculous intervention, God's salvation, caused the Egyptians to believe, but it was too late for them. It caused the Israelites to believe unto survival but now now the real fun would shortly begin praise god for coming out of egypt praise god for being rescued from pharaoh praise god for being saved out of the world praise god for coming through the waters of baptism Praise God for the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah that leads us. Praise God for the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Praise God we've come out of Egypt. We have been rescued out of Egypt. But between point A and point B is a wilderness a sojourning in this life and this world. Yes, they would face other enemies later on. 
But for the most part, what God did to the Egyptians became known to the ancient Near East. Other civilizations heard and learned what God did to the Egyptians on behalf of the Israelites. Their main problem was no longer Pharaoh. Their main problem was themselves. That's not to say there will not be opposition. There will not be enemies. The people of God, the church of God, the children of God have enemies today. Islam is the enemy of Christ, the real Christ. The homosexual and lesbian activists are the enemies of Christ. And they are the enemies of those who follow Christ. No one says that we do not have enemies and opponents. But we have been rescued from the power of Pharaoh. From this point on, although there would be other enemies and opponents, the biggest enemy, the biggest opponent was themselves. And that is true for you and I. After we are born again, after we are saved, after we are baptized, after we come to a saving faith in Jesus. Yes, there will be enemies. The enemies of God will be our enemies. That is true. But the biggest enemy will no longer be Pharaoh. The biggest enemy will be us. Our old nature. If it wasn't for the old creation, the old man, the old woman, Satan wouldn't have much to work with. But here we are. Now the sojourn begins. Praise God for salvation. But that is only the first step of salvation. We've explained before, there's justification, there's sanctification and redemption. Entering into God's kingdom is the redemption. Coming out of Egypt, justification. The blood of the lamb justified us. The sojourn is sanctification. Saved, saved, and saved, or have been saved, being saved, shall be saved. No, the enemy is there. Satan is there. But when I was born again, he lost his control, his grip over me. He remains my enemy. He makes trouble. Peter tells us he goes around like a roaring lion as if some strange thing were happening. All of that is true. But the biggest opponent I have had to fight with since coming through the water, since leaving Egypt, has not been Pharaoh. It has been James Jacob Prash. It has been my old nature. Are enemies there? Of course they are. 
Is the devil active? He's desperately active. Does he have the power over us he once did before we were saved? No. We're new creations. We've gone through the water. Now notice everybody goes through the water. Only God's people come out. In baptism, we co-die with Christ, co-buried with Christ. We come out new creations. The unsaved, they just go under and drown. They stay there. Their corpses are washed onto the shore. Only those whose faith is in the Lord will come out. So it begins. We have a problem in the church, and I've mentioned this problem before, but it befits this particular passage of scripture to perhaps touch on it again at the risk of sounding like a broken record. Jesus commanded to make disciples, not converts. You can count decisions. You can count baptisms. But they don't count ultimately. Can you count disciples? How many people are still walking with the Lord five, ten years later and longer? How many? There's a problem with people very often who rightly and justly have a burden to see the lost saved. There are many evangelists like this. I've known many. God bless them. Their desire to see people saved is the desire of Christ to see them saved. Such evangelists have noble motive and intention. God bless them. But they forget that Jesus said to make disciples, not converts. What good is it for an obstetrician to deliver a baby and leave the baby instead of handing it over to a neonatologist or a pediatrician so it can be properly nurtured and grown and health can be looked after. There are evangelists who lead people to Christ and don't put them in any church or refer them to any fellowship. There are people who are evangelists who will lead people to Christ and put them in bad churches with bad doctrine and bad pastors, forgetting that Jesus said to the Pharisees, you go to the ends of the earth to make a convert, he becomes twice as much a son of hell as he used to be. I've known evangelists like this. I have known evangelists like this. They think they're preaching the gospel, and they are, but they'll go to any church, any platform to do it without reference to the discipleship that needs to follow it. This is bad. I knew one evangelist. It nearly destroyed his family, and I believe it was a contributing factor in his own death. I've told the story before. There's a friend of mine. I pleaded with him to stop speaking in churches that he privately admitted were loony in their doctrine. He privately admitted it, but he wanted to have a platform. 
And he began disassociating himself publicly, not privately, but publicly, from people like myself and others. I wasn't the only one he disassociated from. Because we were speaking out against, at that time, the laughing and drunken counterfeit revival fiascos. And he would speak at these churches that were having this. And he would speak at any church with any kind of craziness. Now, among, he had other problems as well, doctrinally. But I tried to tell him, look, these churches can hurt people. Well, one of these churches did something that greatly contributed to, if not caused, the death of his own daughter. One of the word faith churches. Now you see what happens? You see what happens when you lead people to Christ and put them in those kinds of churches? They can kill people. They can kill people. I recall in England, separate instance, when the Crown Coroner, Sir Montague Levine at the time, who was the Crown Coroner, the senior post-mortem pathologist for England and Wales. And he has a, had, he's no longer alive, but he had a niece who is a Jewish believer in Jesus, who is a Morio team member in Israel. No names to be mentioned. And he did an autopsy on a young woman in London, a young black woman, 22 years old, who went to a Mara Sorello crusade and was told she was healed by Cirillo. Threw her medication away, her anti-epilepsy medication. Now, I don't deny the Lord can heal people from epilepsy, but if he does, he heals them. This woman didn't take her meds and she drowned in a bath. She drowned to death in a bath. He does the autopsy and he goes on national TV news. And he says, this woman should be alive. She would be alive if she didn't go to a Mara Sorello crusade. This is an unsaved Jew and he sees this. It did not stop. Kensington Temple Elam and other from promoting him in England, even after this happened. It didn't matter to Colin Dye, it didn't matter to Elam, it didn't matter to the late one, they just didn't care. I don't think their God was God, I think their God was their ministries. They weren't building his kingdom, they were building their own empires. And if a con artist money preacher from America could help them do it, they would. Now, the same Cirilla was found guilty of all four charges against him by the UK Advertising Standards Council. He was a terrible man. He went on television it, it, on a program called Dispatches in the UK, and they showed him. He said, send 10 pounds, British. Send uh, maybe 12, 15 dollars. Send 12 pounds. No, send 10 pounds and see two Jews saved. And as an added bonus, two members of your family will be born again. He was selling tickets to the Toronto Experience. Pay now for 25 pounds. It was 40, then he marked the Holy Spirit was put on sale down to 25 from 40. And you will be assured you're part of the great move of God. This borders on the sin of simony. 
selling the Holy Spirit. It didn't matter to Elam, didn't matter to the Kensington Temple. It did. It didn't matter. There was a four-year-old girl, a little four-year-old girl. You put on the platform and this much fanfare in front of a couple of thousand people saying she was healed and had her dancing on the stage saying she was healed. She died four days later. Terrible man. How can people call that kind of a ministry evangelism? How can people lead souls to Christ and put them in churches that would promote Mara Cirillo, as Elam did repeatedly in their magazine? Every edition, full-page ads also. How could they do it? This is terrible. No. Thank God for his judgment on Pharaoh and his armies. Thank God for coming through the waters. Thank God for the Shekinah. Thank God for the angel of the Lord. Thank God we have come out through the water from Egypt. But now the journey begins. Second birth, praise God. But now comes discipleship. We always say, evangelism minus discipleship equals zero. The Egyptians were laying dead on one shore of the Red Sea. What good would it have been if the Israelites were laying dead on the opposite? That's what happens. We will continue looking at this next week. What happens after salvation? What happens when we sojourn through the wilderness? Thank you so much for listening. God bless. Thank you.